0: Hey, y'all. Welcome to Detoxicity, a show about progressive masculinity. I'm the show's host and producer, Mike Joseph. If you enjoy what you're hearing on the show, I kindly ask that you smash the subscribe button on whichever platform you're using to listen. Also, please don't hesitate to rate, comment, and recommend. If you have someone in your life that could get something out of the conversations we're having here, tell them about the show. Also, feel free to follow me on social media. I'm DetoxPodGuy on Instagram and tisMikeJoseph, that is T-I-S, Mike Joseph on Twitter. You can even email me, DetoxPod at gmail.com. Don't hesitate to reach out if you know someone who might be interested in being interviewed on the show or if you have any other ideas or constructive criticism. Most importantly, I thank you very much for listening. Stay well. Jeff Giles is a writer first and foremost. He founded the pop culture website, popdose.com, almost a decade and a half ago, and he has also written for sites including Rotten Tomatoes, Paste, and Ultimate Classic Rock. Uh, Jeff has written two books, uh, one of which is A Guide to Beer, and one of which is an oral history of the TV soap opera, One Life to Live. Uh, He is not to be confused with the other pop culture writer named Jeff Giles, who has written for Entertainment Weekly, among other outlets. I somebody would have changed their name or something along the way. Anyway, uh, Jeff is also the co-host of my other podcast, fm to mtv where he, myself, and our friend Jason Hare discuss the pop music that we grew up with. In addition to being a writer and a podcaster, Jeff is a husband, a parent of two, and a good friend to many, including me. Uh, During our conversation, Jeff and I discuss everything from failed entrepreneurship to the difficulties of raising children who are very much their own people. Uh, we also talk a fair amount about our own relationship with one another, so you'll get a little insight into what makes us tick as friends. So uh, let's hear what Jeff has to say, everybody. Well, well, I'm
1: Jeff Giles. What do I do? I'm an editor. I'm a
0: writer. Uh, I've written a couple of books. I started a website. I've done some stuff. I you used done, you've done a fair amount of stuff. You host a podcast with me? Yeah, I do. I host another
1: one with our friend Matt
0: Wardlock. Yeah. I used to be a singer. I used to be a graphic designer. I used to publish a newspaper. I, I, there's You've a done hard. a lot of shit. <laughs> How did you become a jack of all trades?
1: It probably comes from not wanting to do anything the hard way, the long way. Okay. You know? I started writing about music for money in the late 80s, at a time when, if you're not old enough to remember life before the internet, before blogs, you know, it used to be that if you wanted to write something, you needed somebody to give you a platform. And I was always really impatient about that and didn't want to go to journalism school. I didn't want to have to get a degree to do something I felt like I could do pretty well. So I had a job at a little local zine and then I wrote about music from my, my high school paper. And then when I graduated, instead of doing the sensible thing and going to school and getting a degree in that direction, I just started publishing a newspaper and rapidly discovered that I am a terrible businessman. <laughs> and <laughs> so that led to the first detour, probably. I, I, I depended on ads to cover the cost of, of printing and that's a tough that's a tough business even in the 80s this was the early 90s at this Okay point, but yeah i i had there was a label. I don't want to say their name if they're still around. I don't know if they are, but I had a contract with them for ads and they they were late paying for the the ad that they placed. And because of that, I was in arrears with the printer. And I think the printer ended up, I can't remember, this was still long ago. I I was afraid they were going to take me to court, let's say that. And so that was the end of the paper. I ended up delivering medical supplies for a while. Oh, wow. Came back to music again. I, I came into some money, and I, I had met these musicians when I was publishing the paper that, uh, whose work I really loved. And I reached out to them and I said, hey, I've got this money. I'm going to get you guys plane tickets. I want you to go to LA and just show up at the record labels, and we're going to get you a deal. And very sensibly, they said, that's a stupid idea. Sure. If you want to pay for our music, why don't you pay for us to record an album? So I did. And then I was a label owner and I did that for a while and was reminded all over again that I'm a terrible businessman. And even if you're a good business person, I think running a label is an excellent way to lose money. You might as well just throw it right out your window. I made the mistake of hiring my ex-girlfriend as a publicist, but you don't have to do dumb things like that to lose money (laughs) releasing music. (laughs) But at this time, I was... Writing and recording my own music at the same time. So I was not just the label boss. I was an artist. And I was equally bad at both things. And one night, I was doing a show opening for Matt Nathanson. Oh, wow. Back when, back before he was Matt Nathanson. He was an indie artist who was kind of local. And I tried to sign him, and wisely he rejected me. But... He did agree to come to this house concert that we were doing, and I, at this, particular, this night, I remember realizing that I was marking time between covers in my set, and I thought, if I'm bored with my own music, then I have no right to be up here in front of a microphone. Sure. I'm committing noise pollution, I need to stop. So I did, and then I did graphic design for a while, and it was eventually lured back into writing about music again, and and it's it's been, this is a very rambling beginning.
0: No, but there's a lot to that. When you were a kid, was there something singular that you wanted to do or wanted to be, or was it similarly a little of this, a little of that all over the place? I want to be everything.
1: I wanted to make a living making
0: music but I didn't have the patience
1: to learn an instrument. And so writing about music came more easily than actually making music. And so I think that's probably what drew me toward doing it for money. It was something that people thought I was good at from a young age, and it was kind of this precocious thing. It was uh, sort of a gimmick that this kid, Was doing it. I didn't have a dream of being famous or anything. I just
0: wanted to make music. To make music. Okay. You've said before, which is sort of mind-blowing to me, that when you were a kid, your folks only played certain kinds of music in the car or whatever. So as now we know each other as adults and you have this vast repository of music knowledge, was this something that you just discovered for yourself as a kid? Was there someone who encouraged you in that direction? How did you even like develop the knowledge base?
1: That's a good question. When I was a kid, it was all top 40 all the time. I'm very envious of people who talk about having a cool older brother or uh, a hip uncle or somebody like that that got them into stuff like... What would it have been back when I was a kid? I don't know. Probably something on
0: college radio. Like, I didn't have anybody... Whatever, like, New Wave or... or.
1: <clears throat> yeah. had nobody like that. The artist that I gravitated toward the most was Billy Joel.
0: He was my favorite
1: for a long time.
0: Which I don't think is unusual for someone in our age. Yeah, although...
1: And and this is, in hindsight, very stupid, because he was very successful. But from my perspective, at least among my peer group, Billy Joel was sort of an underdog. Like, I felt like I was, yes, yes, I see the look on your face. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because the kids my age were really into Michael Jackson or Madonna or Prince or Springsteen. And, uh, yeah, and so Billy Joel was my guy. You know, and it didn't even, I had no perspective, especially, yeah, I think when I first really started getting into his music, I was probably eight or nine. So I had no perspective on who he was, you know, that he was fucking multi-platinum. The Stranger. He was big, exactly. yeah, he's big. Right, these other artists that my friends were listening to were the ones who were really the underdogs right. of this equation. Billy Joel, then Chicago, you know, any, any kind of white bread Top 40 act, really. And then from there, that, that sort of underdog, that fondness for the underdog, you know, I, I would gravitate toward artists that I felt like nobody was listening to. Like, the first album that I spent my own money on, I think, was Every Turn of the World by Christopher Cross. Holy shit. Wow. Okay. Which I think peaked it number 196 on the Billboard 200 in 1985. This was well after his sell-by date. Sure. I don't know why I bought it, but I loved it. And so there were numerous artists like that, that, you know, I felt like they deserved my time and attention. I made. Mean, did you feel like that? Was like, did you feel protective of...
0: I felt protective of the musicians that I enjoyed, but I also... The musicians I enjoyed, at least up until I got to high school, were pretty widely popular musicians. It's funny, like once I got to high school and I was a Michael Jackson fan and no. it wasn't cool to like Michael Jackson anymore, I think that almost made me more protective. When the
1: hell did you start high school and it wasn't cool to like Michael Jackson?
0: In the real dangerous early nineties? Nobody sold like crazy. Yeah, but kids weren't buying it. <laughs> Kids, I mean, to be a kid in 1991 and 1992, when everybody was listening to hip hop or Mary J. Blige or, you know, Nirvana and and Pearl Jam, right? To still be jamming to Michael Jackson, I mean, you know, people would go home and watch the videos after The Simpsons when they premiered and then kind of like talk smack about them the next day. Yeah. But no one was hanging out in lunch period blasting black or white.
1: So there were no artists that you felt like
0: this underdog? This artist is mine. (sighs) Probably. I'm kinda drawing a blank at the moment. Somebody like like Nina Cherry, who to most people is a one hit wonder. But I thought her first two albums, her second album, Homebrew in particular, was excellent, but I was the only human I knew (laughs) who owned a copy of that record. Even yeah. like Lenny Kravitz when he first came out. You know, I had Let Love Rule on Cassette Single. It's my favorite Lenny Kravitz song. Really? Yeah. Nobody in high school in Brooklyn in 1989 <laughs> knew who Lenny Kravitz was, much less was playing his music. Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely was protective so towards certain artists, but in the grand scheme of things, those artists are pretty big. They just were not big in my age range or my part of the country or my right. demographic
1: yeah i think i was a lot of the artists that i loved in that way were probably of the same ilk like late 80s bg's
0: you know right. i bought that one record i loved it i wore it out. we're no 14 year old no
1: <laughs>
0: was listening to the bg's in the late 80s no no paul carrick mike
1: and the mechanics you know again right solidly on this
0: very you were listening to very...
1: Top 40 very middle-aged white music, yeah man
0: as a kid, yeah
1: and and I, this is something I've written about a lot. I, I think part of it owes to the fact that at that point in time, we as kids were sharing the top forty with our parents right and nobody thought twice about it until never mind, basically, you know there's this whole you could fill compilations with songs that were eighth grade dance or prom ballads. That were sung by people that were older three times our age. Yes, <laughs> old enough to be your parents. Had been divorced multiple times. Right, right.
0: Yes. So whereas now, I mean, there's nobody over 35 in the top 40. So I know that you have brothers. How many? I, I feel like there's like four, three. I have two brothers. Okay, I have many brothers, but blood blood relation. Yes, two okay.
1: two brothers that I grew up with and a sister.
0: Okay, older, younger? All younger. Okay, so you obviously definitely had nobody to sort of act as a...
1: No, I had a... There was a quote-unquote uncle who was a friend of the family, but his tastes were very much... Like, I discovered Night Ranger records through him. He was very AOR. He was... Yes. It doesn't get more Caucasian than that, No, it does not. Not at all. (laughs) And then my mom had a younger brother who was cooler, and we would talk a lot, and we would talk about music a lot, but the only band that he introduced me to was a band that no one's ever heard of. They were out of New York in the mid to late 80s. They were called The Hungry Dutchman. They had their first video on basement tapes, if you remember that, on MTV. Vaguely. Yeah. This was like the precursor to 120 minutes. Right. Yeah. But So, yeah, there was nobody saying, you got to check out Sonic Youth or. Susie and the Banshees, Susie REM, the Banshee
0: Depeche exactly. Mode, Order, none of yeah. that stuff. And
1: I don't know, like, I, the, the kids that liked that stuff when I was in school were kids that I
0: thought were annoying. You know, they
1: they were all black and they talked about Amnesty International. And it was stuff that was really, you know, kind of out of my
0: ability to relate to or comprehend at that point in time. So, you have a reputation now as kind of a curmudgeon. Were you always kind of a curmudgeon? Maybe I can't deny that this is true, but I feel like it's unfair because I love music.
1: Yeah, you do. I just don't feel like there's nothing that I love to the extent that it's it's unqualified. Or it's it's uh, you know it's uh, there's always something that you can be critical about. I can't think of this of a single album that I've ever heard that I would say is beyond reproach or that we couldn't talk about in critical terms.
0: Sure. yeah. I I feel like there's a difference between criticizing something or being critical about something and being angry about it or being... And we were talking before I hit record about the way music criticism is nowadays. I, I feel like some of it is just... It's written to be negative. I guess that's always been the case. But now it just feels like, oh, I'm going to trash some shit just to get clicks.
1: Do you think that's more the case now?
0: It feels like, I don't know. Maybe I'm sensitive to it because people have been ripping apart this John Mayer record that I really like. Maybe that's just me being sensitive. I have issues with that record. What?
1: Yeah. I feel like I'm being trolled and I resent it. But we can talk about that.
0: Why do you no love me, Jeff?
1: (laughs) Oh, God. My least favorite song.
0: What? The that's the best song on the record.
1: Oh. All right. We'll talk about this afterward. <sighs> <sighs> Do you feel Jack like Jack. that's more prevalent?
0: I feel like it's I don't know if it's more prevalent. I feel like there are whipping like whipping boys now, but I guess twenty years ago there were also acts that just, you know the critic wouldn't even put the record on it, just be like, This is a piece of shit, the artist is a piece of shit. so I guess it's the same.
1: Yeah, I think when I was younger, this is one of the bad things I think about starting out young, is that you don't really understand the weight of your words. Whether you're writing about music or just talking to another human being, I don't think you understand the weight of your words. And not that I ever really had a massive audience or anything, but just as a human being, writing about another human being And their expression. I think it was much easier for me when I was starting out to be very glib. And I think one of the things that people don't give critics enough credit for is how quickly you become numb to whatever it is you're being inundated with. You know, if you're a film critic, if you're a music critic, television critic, whatever. A lot of stuff is kind of the same. And 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 you... and you just become numb to it. I remember I walked out of a James Taylor concert, kind of in not the full flush of my music criticism career. But at one point in the early 90s, I was at a James Taylor show. And I was sitting on the grass. I was listening to him perform. And I thought, I could listen to this at home. The only difference is there's some asshole to my left screaming Mexico. Between <laughs> your, like you become very blase you become very jaded very quickly it's it's for people who haven't done it I think it's hard to understand how fast that can happen and not that it isn't a personality defect but I I definitely feel like when I started out I was much faster to say something cutting or insulting or rude and I, I feel like when 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 I came back to writing about music in the mid aughts, in the blogosphere, or whatever you want to call it, was in early bloom. I think there were a lot of writers who did stuff like that. A lot of people read Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, you know, and, and, and felt like, oh, okay, I can do this. Right. And, you know, that stuff is fun to read and it's funny, but it isn't terribly deep always.
0: And I think there's a heightened awareness now. One reason that I kind of stopped writing about music is because I don't want to yuck anybody's yum right if someone appreciates something if somebody likes something just because I don't like it doesn't make me writing them wrong. yeah I'd rather focus on the things I like than tear shit down that people may or may not have worked hard to create that may or may not be ripped from somebody's personal life or whatever. Like, I'd just rather not be part of that discussion In a ne- from a negative sense.
1: I feel that too. And that that dovetailed with the advent of streaming, I think. Because I think the critic's job in the old days was to be kind of a gatekeeper, but also somebody who, who would say, you, you know this is not what you should spend your
0: money on. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I guess that's another way of saying gatekeeper, but, and now nobody's spending their money on this anymore.
1: Exactly. You can listen to anything all the time. And you don't need a critic to tell you that something sucks. What you might want is to read somebody whose tastes align with yours, you know, and then they can be kind of that de facto cool uncle or whoever to hip you to somebody that you that you haven't heard but the function of the critic as I think of it traditionally it's obsolete I don't think we need to do that anymore right and that's part of what led me away from writing about music was that I I didn't think I didn't think what I was doing had any purpose anymore but I couldn't find a way to replace it with something else or I didn't have the energy to replace it with something else I I didn't know what was supposed to come next but I, I agree with you like the, the the guy who was reviewing the albums in the eighties, you know that that sort of platonic ideal of the the music critic, I think, is is gone. Yeah. You know? Because if you hear of an album, you can listen to it.
0: Right. You're not going to stand in a record store wondering whether you're going right. to spend your eight ninety nine right on this album or not. You right. can even if you are the type of person who spends money on music, you can try before you buy. Yeah. So it's a different, you know, culture has changed. You know, technology has changed. I knew a lot of guys in the used
1: CD era who, on principle, would refuse to buy them.
0: I don't think I know anybody now who won't stream. Right. uh, At least I try to be principled, but at the same time, well, this shit is free and gives me the option to sample. Right. You grew up in California, if I remember correctly. I did, yeah, Bay Area. So what what brought you east?
1: Well, I was born in Jersey.
0: Okay. Okay. I don't know if I knew that. I I think I knew that.
1: Denville, New Jersey.
0: I have no clue where that is. Upstate.
1: Okay. And when I was young, before my parents split up, we lived in a little tiny town called Upper Greenwood Lake. And from what I'm told, uh, as you know, you have to take all this stuff that your parents tell you with a grain
0: of salt. of Oh, fuck yes. <laughs> yes, I do. But from what I've told... Might be apocryphal. This was the last
1: house before you reached the border of New York. Okay. Appalachian Trail ran through the backyard. The property butted up against a forest, so it was very idyllic, you know. We had, I had a cocker spaniel that I'd run around with, and then my parents split up when I was, I think, four. And my mom ended up moving to California with her new husband. Okay. And going from that very rural existence and, and kind of having free roam, uh, being able to roam freely throughout the, the woods on the property, going from that to the Bay Area, even in the late 70s, was a really jarring transition. And I hated it. <laughs> I, I hated not having weather. I hated all the sidewalks. And uh, I just remember concrete asphalt and 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 wanting to get back to the, the type of environment that I remembered from when I was a little kid. And then, so I always had that in the back of my head. And then in the
0: late, in the 80s,
1: there was a show called New Heart.
0: I don't know. If yeah, you're, I, I don't know that I've ever watched an episode <laughs> of Newhart, but I'm familiar with the show. Yeah, so in in Newhart, Bob Newhart played an innkeeper in, in like a, Vermont, right? In Vermont, exactly. Know more about the show than I thought I did. Oh. And so I I loved this show, and I told you him were everybody. a strange kid.
1: I sure was. I, I had to have been. I don't know, 13, 14, 15. But I I kept saying I'm gonna. Moved to Vermont. I'm going to retire. This is where I'm going to go. I'm going to get back east. I'm going to retire to Vermont. Okay. To the extent that, what year was it? 2001, I think. I actually took a vacation with a friend of mine. We spent a week driving around Vermont because I was I, I wanted to get back there. And then I got married, and my wife and I were living in the Bay Area. And her parents were military employees who were getting ready to retire. My wife is from Rhode Island. And my in-laws wanted to end up someplace where their federal pensions were not going to be taxed. So they picked New Hampshire. Okay. And at this point in time, our first child had just been born. And I had just gotten a history degree. And I was working toward getting my teacher teaching credential. I was going to be a history teacher. And my in-laws were going to buy this house, but they weren't ready to move into it yet. And so we graciously agreed to move into it for them and rent it from them until they were ready to move in. And so I stopped working on my teaching credential and moved to New Hampshire with my wife and kid. That's how I ended up back here.
0: You said it many times over the years: a country mouse, like the city <laughs> freaks you out.
1: I don't like. Driving. And here
0: we are, like we're in my apartment in Brooklyn. Yeah, and and. You know, I'm like, is Jeff okay?
1: I'm Listen, I grew up in the, I don't like the city, but I grew up in the suburbs. Okay. You know, I
0: didn't grow up in Podunk. So we're, as long as we're not in like Midtown Manhattan. (laughs) (laughs) As long as I'm not driving in Midtown Manhattan, I'll be fine. All right. What is it about the quieter environments that you find so attractive as, as compared to a more urban environment?
1: That's a good question. I was going to say the reason that
0: that we wanted to leave the Bay Area was
1: that we wanted to raise our kids someplace where there was a little bit of history in the ground. You know, in California, at least, where I grew up and where I was living when we moved, it's a land of freeways and strip malls. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of traffic. There's not a lot of anything that feels permanent. That's what I was looking for. When we moved to New Hampshire, we lived in a little tiny town that had maybe a thousand people. There was one road. It, it, it's, it's like this lake town. There are a lot of them in New Hampshire that there are a lot of rental properties. That, you know, the, the, the population doubles in the summertime. So a lot of this town is is, is a development and there's one road into it. One road out. You know, if anything really ever goes bad there, you're you're
0: stuck behind these other thousand people. Yeah.
1: We had to have satellite internet, which if you've ever done that is infuriating. (laughs) I had to buy a BB gun to shoot snow off the satellite dish in the winter. So there were things about that existence that were not really super appealing. Now we're in a town that's more like, you
0: know, twenty thousand
1: people. Sure. Yeah. There's You've been there. It's a, it's yeah, so I've
0: been there. It's a perfectly nice town. It's a lovely quaint. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, quaint is a very, very good <laughs> word. I mean, I, I'm certainly much more comfortable there than I feel like I'd be in a town with a thousand people. Mm, like yes. a thousand people is... That's less than my graduating class in high school. Same. Yeah. That's, Same. That's, that's, that's bananas.
1: It was not... Yeah, we, we didn't stay there for... Well, we stayed there for seven years. But.
0: That's fucking
1: time. But when I go back home... You know, my, I still have family back in, in Santa Clara where I grew up. And when I go back home, I, I still get very nostalgic for that town. I, I always wonder, There, there's so much more choice here. There's so much more culture here. There's so many more different people here. Right. People who don't look like my kids and me. Right. Did I make a mistake? Should I have stayed there? I, I mean, you would have to have infinite money to really play with that question in a serious way. But yeah. I don't know. The answer to your question is I don't know. There are parts that, that I like about both things. I mean, I got here in Brooklyn and I got to order from uh, Loco Macho Taco, which I could not do at home. Yep. I appreciate that too. Okay,
0: thank you. So, I, what's it like raising two teenagers? Are they? They're both uh, teenagers now, right?
1: Yeah, is okay. fifteen and one is thirteen. It's not a job for the faint of
0: heart. <laughs> I bet not. I was a teenager once. Everybody I meet.
1: If they tell me they're thinking about having kids,
0: I tell them not to.
1: Maybe this goes along with that whole curmudgeon thing.
0: <laughs> you tell me. This is your story.
1: I feel like if you're thinking about having kids and I tell you not to, and you listen to me, then you shouldn't have had kids in the first place.
0: That's actually very, so a very, a no very smart observation. <laughs> it's a tough gig, man. It'll rip you up. You're you're raising humans. Like it's not a dog that's going to die when when it's ten years old. This is someone you're going to have to be responsible for, not just for 18 years, but forever. the repercussions of that are going to be forever.
1: Yeah. You're raising humans who are separate from you. Yeah. Which hurts. There's no other way to put it. Your kids are going to reject everything about you before they're done. And that's a series of microaggressions that you have to develop some sort of rhino hide. Yeah. Yeah, man. Uh, there are exhausting things about every phase of that journey I think when they're very young and they won't fucking sleep that's exhausting you know you can't talk to them that's exhausting and then when they're toddlers and they won't sit still and you can't turn around that's exhausting and then there's this this phase is, is uh, it's exhausting in its own way like they're they're doing what they're supposed to be doing they're defining who they are and they're doing it in a way that has nothing to do with me and often has no visible connection to my values, you know, anything that I've tried to impart as a fellow human on this planet. And that's tough.
0: Do you think that the things that you've taught, the things that you've said, are that they've taken hold, that they're in there somewhere?
1: I know that when I was that age, I was very focused on rejecting.
0: Well, is that By true? listening to Christopher Cross? <laughs> <laughs> <Like, laughs> well, I didn't
1: get along with my parents. My dad and I, my my, my mother's second husband, who the guy who raised me, my father died when I was very young. I was five when my father died. And so the, the guy who raised me, the guy that I think of as my dad, he and I did not get along at all until he and my mother split up oh wow my mother was very young when she had me she was 21 and so whatever you know anything that they were trying to teach me either explicitly or tacitly at that age i think i just either i didn't see it or i rejected it i remember one night when I was, I think, eight or nine, they sat me down to watch Cool Hand Luke. You ever watch that
0: movie? I've never seen it. I know of the movie, but I've never seen it.
1: Paul Newman, who is now my favorite actor. It's just, uh, Basically, the gist of the story is that this guy is anti-authoritarian. He, he, he just cannot handle being told what to do. And the start of the movie, he's belligerent drunk and vandalizes some parking meters, and he ends up on a chain gang. And he is so unable to do what he's told that the rest of the film is just about him butting heads with whatever authorities in front of him, whether it's the, the you know, like the, the big guy in the prison yard who's played by George Kennedy. I don't think you know who George
0: Kennedy is. I vaguely know You would know George his face. Kennedy,
1: so. Okay. Big All guy. Right. Anyway. He gets into a fight with George Kennedy, who is much bigger than him. He he eats 50, I think it's 50 boiled eggs on a dare because somebody tells me he can't do it. Damn. He, uh, but, but, but most memorably, he can't get along with the warden. And ultimately he's killed. Spoiler alert.
0: It's a 50 year old movie, but. <laughs>
1: Excuse me. And I think my parents showed it to me to try to get me to stop being a smart ass. But it really had the opposite effect. I think more of a smart ass. Maybe. Like, it's just really appealing to me. This guy did things on his own turn. So I think... I don't think I was unusual in that way. I, I, I don't think in the moment any of the stuff that they were trying to tell me was absorbed in a way that I consciously understood. And I'm sure it's the same way for my kids now. You know, I... I didn't really understand what my dad was going through until I had kids. That makes sense. If you get I think if you're lucky enough you live long enough for your kids to tell you, hey, I get it now. <laughs> yes, thank exactly.
0: You. Yeah. That's
1: yeah. that's the, the potential reward on the other end. Yeah, man.
0: What what is the biggest or the most difficult thing about raising teenagers? Well, my
1: oldest is trans. And that's probably, I, I, I kind of don't want to put it this way because I, I don't mean it the way it might sound, but that's that's the biggest challenge that we face right now. Sure. You know, not not the idea that he's trans, not the, I, I don't have any particular objection to or, or, or negative feelings associated with having a trans child. It's just, it's a lot. It's a lot intellectually to process on a daily basis, whether it's, you know, just the shock of, of, well, I guess it wasn't a shock, but there's, you know, there's that Rubicon that you have to cross when your child tells you, I'm not, you know, this is, the name you gave me is not my name. This is my name now. Right. And this is who I, who I identify as. You have to kind of rejigger your you're thinking in that respect, and that that's a lot to go through. And But also, like, there's a hump that you go over when you realize that just being supportive of your child on that journey is not enough. Okay. Like, if you have a kid who's... I'm only speaking to my personal experience here. I'm going to be, I'm trying to sound general, but I'm yeah. if you have a kid who's kind of an asshole and then he tells you that he's trans and you say, all right, I'm here for you. Let's do this. He's probably still going to kind of be an hey, asshole. Like, right. Yeah.
0: The acceptance is not really the, it the, doesn't change the fundamental right. being of this person. Right.
1: And then also when I was,
0: when I was a boy,
1: first of all, I don't, I, I in retrospect, I know now that I knew gay people, but I didn't know it at the time. Trans was the a, a thing. thing yeah. Unless you were making jokes about trannies right. in the
0: movies. Non-binary? Nope. Yeah, you I mean sh- the weird thing is of course it existed back then, right. but no one had the terminology.
1: Or or had or felt like they had the room to express right. it. Right. Right? Right. You know, talking about just I can't even imagine. The generations of repressed pain that it's, it blows my mind. It breaks my
0: heart. Yeah. I mean, I, I can relate that to even just being a queer person and going through high school and, and thinking, and, and this is not a very long time ago. Right. Thinking, hey, like, I, I can't express this. Like, nobody in high school knew about me. I wasn't comfortable talking to anybody back then.
1: This is what I try to explain to my kids. You know, they get angry and upset about. I'll give you an example. This is what I'm talking about when I say that the acceptance is not enough and that there are still so many different struggles as a parent. One of them is just, like, fucking nailing pronouns. Right. And and not being given the grace by your shitty kids <laughs> that don't that don't understand that. I mean, even for me as an editor, calling somebody they that was the, the bridge that I had to cross. You know, I was brought up to believe that they was not proper English. Right. I had to get around that. Anyway, we're in the car, and my wife is trying to share with the kids this story about. I can't even remember the details anymore. I, I think. That the first woman to start a religion in the United States was a trans woman, or a non-binary woman, or something, I'm probably paraphrasing terribly, but the point of the story is that while she was relaying this, my wife was kind of fudging the pronouns, because I think this is a person who was known as a woman for much of their life, and then identified as non-binary. And so the way my wife was describing this person shifted and the kids got really shitty about it
0: and were
1: giving her a hard time for not using the right pronoun at the right time. This
0: ain't something that we grew up with, though.
1: Yeah, it ain't. And and that's what I was, for, for, I, I just kind of blew up before. I was like, this person's been dead for 200 years. Why right. are you getting upset? Like, they don't care. Right.
0: You don't need to get angry on this person's behalf. I think it's important to show a little bit of grace. And, <laughs> and when you're a teenager, you don't necessarily understand no, you that. Don't. All
1: right. I didn't. All right. And I know
0: that. But when I'm dealing with my
1: teenagers, that could be rough. That's what therapy is good for, Mike.
0: <laughs> you don't say, Jeff. <laughs> I never considered that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: to talk this stuff out. With an impartial third party and, you know, help help give you the tools to deal with.
0: Has that been valuable for you? I, I say this kind of knowing the answer already, but...
1: I don't think I'm uh, naturally gifted in terms of thinking in moments of emotional stress. I think I, I speak without thinking very sure. often in those... Situations and those are the important ones with your kids. And so I don't stick the landing during those conversations as often as I would like to. But I do think that therapy has been tremendously helpful, even just in terms of him, my therapist, making probably what he considers to be offhand comments that I latch onto and carry with me. Like one time he said, When your kids are on the offensive, don't go on the defense, and and it's a very simple thing. That is not unique, exotic knowledge. That,
0: that, but it's basic shit that we don't think about. Right in the moment, I certainly yeah. don't think about that.
1: I tighten up, yeah, like a defensive right away.
0: Have that problem? <laughs>
1: yeah, man. I mean, it's just like you got to practice that stuff, right? And it's too bad that usually when you're practicing it, it's. During high-stakes situations, that yeah. if you fuck up, you...
0: you 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 stand to lose a fair amount. Like mindfulness is very easy to be mindful when there are no stakes. If somebody, if somebody says yo mama, you know, if somebody punches you in the face, yeah, like I'm not gonna be mindful and be like. Oh, well, this person is projecting such and such or, or whatever. Like I'm going to want to punch him back twice as hard. Right. So it really does take it is an active effort to stop in that moment and think and then be like, "Okay, why is this happening? What can I do to make the best out of this situation?" Yeah, those moments are rare for me.
1: It's usually after, the fact, I'm like, "Oh god, I shouldn't have done that." The toughest part of parenting teens is just getting yourself squared with the reality that probably more often than not they're not going to want to be close to you. You know, my my eldest I would love nothing more than to just you know, sit down next to him on the couch, put my arm around him and, and be close. But that's not what he wants. And it doesn't matter how supportive we are and it doesn't matter how much he knows that we love him he's just distant at this point in time and I I think it hits my wife harder than it does me but it's still a a weight to carry you know it's something that I need to make peace with
0: perpetually when you were 15 is that what you wanted from your dad from your stepdad consciously
1: probably not subconsciously probably right right yeah yeah he was a hard ass and you know you ask about things being imparted and how they were received you know in 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 retrospect i value the lesson that if you do something and you know you're not supposed to then you need to be prepared to accept the consequences. I think that's a very valuable lesson. Whether the rules are just or unjust, and whether you're, you know, it doesn't matter what your reasons for doing it are. And I mean, when I was a kid, this lesson was typically not applied to anything just. It was just me being a shithead. But you know, if you know what the rules are and you break them, then take you your gotta lumps. Pay for them. Yeah. Take, take your lumps. Yeah. I don't think my kids have accepted that lesson yet, but...
0: I mean, it's relative, right? Is the shit... You know, the fucked up shit you were doing, you weren't stealing cars or anything like that. You weren't, you know, getting in trouble with the law. You were probably just being a smart
1: aleck. Yeah, I did some shoplifting, but
0: yeah. Who doesn't? I mean, I did shoplifting. Definitely being a smart aleck.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Big dumb mouth. Absolutely.
0: And that's, I think, not to make excuses. That's what kids do because they think they're smarter than everybody else. And also, that was my mom's voice coming out of me. It happens, doesn't it? (laughs) Right. But also, I can speak to my own experience. And sometimes I was a smart ass just because I felt like I wasn't being heard by anybody. Right. And the only way that I was going to make myself heard was to kind of be a dick. I mean, I still do that as an adult sometimes. You
1: know what's crazy, though? Like, I think I was definitely. I did all kinds of stuff I wasn't supposed to do, and I did it all the time. But if I was ever a smartass, I would. It, it was in a much more oblique, passive way. My kids will straight up. Oh, my God. Me defiance. Oh, my God. It's. This was one big hump I had to get over early on. Them not appreciating the fact that I'm not violent. You know, because... <laughs> see, if I Nobody could
0: see know, Mike nodding his head aggressively same right Same thing with me. Like I, <laughs> my, my truculence was to a point because whether it was my grandmother or my grandfather or whoever, I knew that if I said the wrong thing, I was getting the shit smacked out of me.
1: Yeah, and if it happened, you knew that... It was kind of
0: like, not
1: that you had it coming, but right. you knew it was going to happen.
0: Yeah. And look, as, as, as someone who was legitimately abused as a child, like I don't condone right. violence. Right. But, you know, I get the, I understand the urge. Sure. And I understand being pushed. Yeah, man. I told myself
1: first, that was probably the one thing I told myself going in. I'm not going to hit my kids, but they just don't appreciate
0: it. Right. Take him to a black family down (laughs) south. Bring Joe Jackson back. Oh, I mean, I am absolutely
1: not black, but there have been moments when I feel like like Bernie Mac. You know, like (laughs) my kid will say something to me. I'm like, what did you say? You get that look at you like you just pause and you rear up and you, oh my God. Oh, so lucky that I'm not violent. So lucky. They they have no idea. You, is is do you need to do like a little Jeff timeout? You know, there have been times for sure i we're not supposed to laugh at him anymore, but uh, Louis C k used to do a bunch of great routines about parenthood, brutally honest routines about parenthood. and I remember he had one when both my kids my kids are two years apart. So there were some years there when shit was going wrong all the time. <clears throat> and I remember he told a joke about the five or six steps or whatever it is between buckling them into their car seat and then walking around to the front door of the car is like the parent equivalent of a carnival cruise at that age. And it's partly because you have the time to stop and be like, I really shouldn't have said that. Right.
0: Get (laughs) that? Yeah. Even as someone who does not have children, I have witnessed this. Yeah, either as kind of an authority figure myself, or in situations with friends who are who are parents, and just kind of been like, "Wow, I, I you've handled that much better than I would have possibly handled it."
1: Yeah, I don't know. My my kids make fun of me uh, periodically for a night when they were they would not stop fighting. Uh, they're not like physically fighting, just. I can't even remember now, actually. Maybe it was physically fighting. It was whatever it was. It made me so upset that I put... It was It was like November. I put on my coat and I went out in the yard. And I think I stayed out there for a couple hours. And when I followed them back inside, they were there. And they said, were you, why, why did you do that? Why were you out in the yard all that time? And my answer was, it's better than fighting that's they will they still laugh about that quote they they make fun of me to this day but you do need that time sometimes yeah. you got to unplug otherwise yeah.
0: you're gonna do you go crazy
1: it. do say something that you're going to regret right.
0: right yes are you do you think you figured out good ways to sort of manage your moments when you you feel angry or or upset Because a lot of dudes don't have those tools.
1: No, they don't. Well, I still haven't hit my kids.
0: They're almost 18. Yeah, I'm almost (laughs) ready. Right, you're you're, you're safe. I almost made it. Yes. I'm a little, well, yeah, it's,
1: I, I almost feel like I'm, I almost feel like I don't deserve to answer that question at this point because I'm, one of my kids is at the stage when he's just in his room all day long. And we have gradually made our peace with basically everything. You know, like, you're not going to clean your room? Okay. You're not going to get good grades? All right. It's just a process of picking your battles, right? Right. To the point where I went to say goodbye to him before I got on the train this afternoon. And, you know, I, I kissed him on the cheek, even though he despise his contact from me. I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. I said goodbye to him. And then I looked and he had a bowl of cereal. I'm going to be charitable and call it a bowl of cereal. At one point it was a bowl of cereal. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was like, do you see that there? Did you see it or did you smell it? No, I saw it and I said, do you see that? Do you know that that's there? Yes. Okay, just left. So I've got one kid that I'm like that you know I, I, I there's not a lot left for us to lock horns over and when we do it tends to be over fairly quickly because my wife and I will both be like okay, fine whatever And then my younger child who is 13, I'm very fortunate that, you know, as often as he can act like a 13-year-old boy and maybe want to kill him, <laughs> he's also very affectionate and he tells us that he loves us and at the end of the day, we, we get into bed together, we watch sitcoms, so I have that. So I kind of feel like, at least for the moment, I've probably gotten through a period when I have to manage my anger all the time I was not always very successful when they were younger yeah man I wish I was
0: more zen not to minimize that but I think a lot of us wish we were more I mean I certainly do yeah yeah
1: we we we, we do our podcasts about music and I get off those calls and I think why did I talk so much Like I should be more
0: zen when we're on when we're talking about. No, but the purpose <laughs> is for you to talk. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also like for the three of us. That's our bonding. You know, I've said it many times before, but I'm jealous of, envious of the relationship that you and Jason have. I don't know what to say to that. I. I, I mean, it just it is. Jason and I. There, there are times when I feel like the uh, the fifth wheel. No, no. I, no, no, no. I, I, I'm just it's, it's how I feel.
1: First of all, there's only three of us on that show.
0: Third wheel. <laughs> fifth? No. I, you're neither. I'm mixing. I was, was my making show. a math joke, well, but you're neither. Phew. You're crucial. You're the glue. Just in terms of your, your relationship, leadership. I please. please. Fearless leader. In terms of of the relationship.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I've never really thought about that. Jason and I have a very...
0: They, nobody cares about this right now. I mean, I do. I, <laughs> I, you know, I feel like the Tito sometimes.
1: You're not Tito, man. Jason and I have a really... I i am so blessed to have Jason in my life. I, I, I'm i sure you feel the same. I uh, yeah, I am Jason. blessed to have both of Just you in my life. Fucking sweetheart. And has really... You know, this, this show is about masculinity. Jason has been a really wonderful example to me of how to cast off stereotypical, toxic, masculine behavior. Well, whether it's uh, stuff you say or stuff you don't say,
0: right? Because Jason's many things, but he's not a bro. No. Although, he
1: has been responsible for some of the most delightfully inappropriate jokes I've ever heard in my life. Sure. You would never know that, to, to talk to him well, under. This is the choir choir boy face is deceiving. Yes. <laughs> so I really, I I am so happy that I have Jason in my life. But my relationship with you is, you know, it, it's 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 different, but it's no no less
0: important. Right? I, Ob- objectively, I get that, and I'm just kind of uh, like, you know, again, it's something that I haven't said before. But I, I you know, I, you guys have a bromance. <laughs>
1: We we bonded over sappy '80s music early on, yeah, yeah. But man, I, yeah, I, I feel just as fortunate to have you in my life. I mean, you you have also challenged me in many ways. The, the, the only reason that I have a therapist, well, thank you, is, is your persistent but gentle nudging
0: in that direction. So. You you are kind of like you're like my tough love arbiter. It's like you and you've said stuff. I not trying to. There are times when you've said stuff to me about myself that has made me like stop and think. Wow! All right, and it's 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 like that's a hard pill to swallow. Shit! I didn't Jeff know I was giving right. you hard pills. I'm sorry. You don't don't apologize because ultimately it's been good. All
1: right. I don't know what I gave you that was a hard pill, but I guess if it was a good one... I mean, I'm
0: also sensitive. So You are, it's yes. true. So.
1: Every episode of Detoxicity is for lovers only. Oh, God.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I mean, you challenge me. You know? I, that, 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 so we're doing each other, we're doing good for each other, right? And, you know, you're one of those people I always want to put the best version of myself wow. in, in, in front of. That's a hell of a compliment. I, you know, you're somebody I look up to. Shit. I'm sorry. (laughs) I need to find you somebody better. I I don't think think there's an apology necessary there, Jeff. (laughs) You know, like you're somebody that I always want to impress.
1: Well, Mike, you do.
0: I don't know about that.
1: You work harder than anybody in my immediate social circle to uplift and improve others. Whether it's something as simple as starting out the day with a tweet that says "Hey, everybody, have a great Monday or a great Friday or whatever," or by putting stuff up on Instagram that's more in depth and more thoughtful, you know, about sexuality,
0: about race, about masculinity, about like, it's very. I mean, I'm just speaking from speaking from my experience. It's valuable, I guess. Thank you. There are
1: not very many people who devote that kind of energy on a consistent basis to, to you know, playing that role. For people, I certainly don't do it. I, I don't. I, I I wouldn't feel. I wouldn't feel like I had the authority. I guess to, to say, a lot of those things. But I'm certainly very glad to have you leading the way. Right? I mean,
0: but you've got you know, particularly in regards to your 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 kids. Like, I'm sure you've had these conversations, you know, with them or are having these conversations.
1: I think my kids, I think they are so much more woke than me
0: that they are not. It's a different world. Having, it's a different world, man.
1: They don't care. They don't care. I've tried to, t- I, 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 like I said, they get angry about the way things are now. And I try to educate them about how it really was not that long ago. That you could you know any parent I think who's listening to this has had the experience of showing their kids a movie that they think of as being totally benign and then you're watching it with your children and something comes on the screen and Mm -hmm. and you think what the fuck Mm -hmm. we watched my, my wife really likes The Wedding Singer we wanted to watch that with my younger son And one of the running jokes, at least early on in that film, is a fat joke. You know, it's at the expense of this kid. There's a joke about a member of the main character's band who's like Boy George-esque. Stuff like that you would not, or I would not even have thought twice about in 1998. Sure. When I was in sixth grade, I think Short Circuit came out. Fisher Stevens, dude who's... Totally white, played an Indian guy He right. was in brownface. Nobody cared at the time.
0: You know? Oh, God. Soul Man. Soul Man.
1: I mean, at least people got kind of upset yeah, about it in the got, moment. But, it,
0: it, they, but that, it came out. That got greenlit. Yes. It went to theaters. Yes.
1: Yeah. I'm pretty sure you can watch it right
0: now yeah. if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. But even, like, I remember maybe, like, two years ago, <sighs> me and my buddy Tristan went to the movies and we watched Purple Rain. And then we came back here and we watched Teen Wolf. Hmm. And those are two problematic ass movies. <laughs> same year? Or not same year. 84, no, 84 and 85. 85. Yeah. But, you know, Teen Wolf is like gay jokes and, you yeah. know, kind of all this stuff. There's a scene in Purple Ring where Prince smacks Apollonia. Right. And, you know, it's just like. And, I remember that, that scene in particular, everybody in the theater gasped at the same time, because I guess nobody remember. I certainly didn't remember it, and I've seen Purple Rain probably four or five times. It's just like, oh, that passed muster in a movie in 1984. Or the scene where they throw the woman in the dumpster, where Morris and Jerome throw the girl in the dumpster. It's just like, oh, right. That shit was funny in 1984. Nobody thought twice. All right. I, you know, times change. I, I tell people, younger people now, it's like, you know, I graduated high school in 1993. Not an incredibly long time ago. Mm-hmm. But if you would ask me in 1993 whether I ever thought that I'd be able to get married to someone of my same gender legally, I'd have been like, get the fuck out of here. And here we are. You know, if someone asked me whether we'd ever have a black president, I'd be like, maybe, but he's going to get assassinated. It happened, and not incredibly long after. No. So it's kind of like progress. It may not seem like progress is happening, but it is. You know, and sometimes you need the perspective of someone who's a little even just a little bit older to give you an idea of what they're coming from, and it kind of puts that into perspective for you.
1: Yeah. But by the same token, I think you also
0: need the anger to say this is not yeah. enough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a weird middle ground <laughs> to, to, to put yourself on.
1: You need people saying this is not this is insufficient.
0: Right. And it is insufficient. Yeah. It you know, on one hand it's like, okay, gotta be appreciative for what has happened in the last few years. Right. And on the other hand it's like you gotta keep pushing.
1: Yeah, especially considering what else has happened in the
0: last right. few years. Right, considering that there's tons of people now trying to roll all that shit back.
1: Yeah, the reaction to the progress. Right.
0: Right. And as much as we may think that those people are dying off, or that oh minority, man, I hope they're dying off, they're they you know they've also got a fair amount of power still. Oh yeah.
1: yeah. Why won't they just retire and
0: get out of the way? I you know I I say have them all move to Florida and then just let Florida secede. Uh, move them all to Texas and have Texas secede. <laughs> yeah. You know. So in terms of masculinity, and I'll ask this kind of sort of last encompassing question. What has been the most difficult thing to reckon with in terms of your own being a man, man. in terms of your own being a guy? It's a big question,
1: right? I think it's always been a little bit of an albatross. I was a runty kid. I was short. I was skinny. Not athletic. And my dad... Was very much an athlete. You know, he was drafted by the Pirates. Oh shit! Yeah, athletics were the that was the way he related to uh, pretty much everything. You know, my my brothers both played sports a whole lot more than I did. My sister played sports, and I was just this kind of runty weirdo who wanted to write and read, listen to music, and so. When I was in grade school, and I guess probably to a lesser extent in high school, I feel like I kind of had an adverse relationship with the the notion of masculinity, I guess. Okay. I don't know. I'm working this out
0: out loud right now. Because you you're tied actually, that into being a jock?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's...
0: Yeah. That checks
1: out. Yeah. You know, I I physically was not the ideal at that time. You know, 80s early 90s. So, uh, yeah, there was and I you know, I don't think there's anything special about this. I think there are a lot of guys even now I assume who feel inadequate or you know, feel like they don't fit the the, the mold, the cultural mold, the physical mold, whatever that they're they're not enough i'm just talking shit right now but like maybe it was more prevalent then anyway so i think i think i've always had kind of a complicated relationship with all of that when i got into my 20s and i started lifting weights and you know becoming more athletic i got bigger i got stronger that those 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 feelings with regards to masculinity kind of faded away but I think I've always had a bit of a complicated relationship to it. I mean, I'm—I don't—I don't really know what kind of impression I give. I know I've got, like, I'm a guy with a big beard. I like—I'm sitting here drinking beer with you. I, I order some craft beer. I live in the woods. It's not uncommon to take out my chainsaw and go chop up some wood. I like to drink bourbon, smoke cigars. So there's a lot of that stereotypical masculine dude stuff, dude yeah. stuff yeah. yeah and i know a lot of dudes and i hang out with a lot of dudes i'm comfortable with dudes but i still think there's always going to be that little bit of that that runty little kid the that outcast yeah
0: the underdog well yeah sure
1: that's there so
0: you i mean you've never and we've known each other now 11 12 years yeah. you've never given me the impression of being someone that's ultra ultra like negatively masculine. All right, good. I'm not toxic. I like to hear that. Yeah. I mean, you've never been... I'm trying to think of of an archetype. You've never struck me as someone who wasn't soft in some way. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I don't take that in a negative way. Yeah. That's great. Like, there's always been kind of like a softness to you. Which, like, I mean, I didn't know about the whole chainsaw thing, but...
1: (laughs) You have to have a chainsaw in New Hampshire. I guess. (laughs) You never know when there's going to be an ice storm and you got to... Why do you live there again?
0: Uh, that's that's a big question. But yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I think there's a way to be masculine, even in the traditional sense, without being problematic.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about this on the way here and trying to anticipate what kind of stuff around the topic of masculinity you'd want to talk about. And I was trying to think about whether I could think of any 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 quality that, that was inherently masculine, you know, like what it means to be a man. And I don't know if I can think of anything that makes you a man, you know. I think if there's one thing I could point to, it's that if you're going to be a good man, you need to you need to understand on some level that you possess an amount of privilege mm. that other people don't have and try to keep that in mind when you interact with other people but in terms of like how you carry yourself and how you talk what you like what you do i would like to think that there's no there's nothing there is that. no
0: universal Quality.
1: My wife and I were just talking about this, I think it was last night, in the midst of some frustration with our children. <laughs> Common theme. They are giving me a hard time because they were talking about somebody who was a she-they. And their perspective was, if somebody identifies as she-they, then it is not enough to either call them she or they. You have to do both in Roughly equal measure, and I got my dander up about that a little bit. And I said, What? So, it's my responsibility to keep track, track of, that. of how many
0: times you've <laughs> used the one pronoun.
1: I object to this, All right? Like, can't it be enough for me to just accept you as a she and a they? Can't I just say she sometimes and they other to, like no? But it's, so, we were after the kids left the room, we were talking about how it would be great if when our kids are older at some point there's much less of an attachment to this whole notion of male female masculine feminine and you know if you want to wear a dress to work and you weren't born female And you weren't born with female... I don't know. What's the proper
0: way of describing If you want to wear a dress, (laughs) it shouldn't matter what your gender is if you want to wear a dress to work. Yes. And nobody
1: would bat an eyelash. Right. And you want to wear a suit the next day, that's great. You don't have to wear a pin saying, today
0: I am he. Tomorrow I am she. Right. You know, on this day I am day.
1: Don't make me keep track of that. Just be who you are. And I think that's right now in 2021, that's an obnoxious, selfish thing for me to say, but it would be a great end goal for the human race if people could just express themselves the way they feel and identify how they choose.
0: Yes, but we're so far behind the eight ball yeah, we sure as a society are. yeah. that I think identity and look, identity plays a huge part in who we all are and how we go about the world. I think in order for us to really accept each other as whatever we are, we have to get past the point where we think that everybody is alike.
1: That everybody's that everybody's either one thing or another. Right. Thinking
0: binary. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because we all contain multitudes, right? Hopefully. Hopefully! Yeah. <laughs> If we're doing our job as human beings, yes, yeah. we contain multitudes. Yeah, if we're, you know, taking in experiences from all the things that we go through and all the people that we encounter, we should contain multitudes. Yeah. And it's not, it, it isn't binary. Like, nothing's fucking binary. Right. You know, I can go back in my family tree and it ain't definitely in all black. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, my sexuality experiences have not all been with men. You know, my, you know, and I think in terms of gender, the one thing I can say that is fairly binary, I mean, I've never not felt like a man, but I'm also empathetic to the fact that there are people that don't feel that way. Right. So it's just a matter of, I think, understanding that everybody has different journeys and their journey might not match yours, but it's just as valid. I wonder what it is that. Gets people so fucking hung up. Because it's not, it's either, I think, I obviously don't know for sure, I think it's either that people are being challenged to empathize with people who are completely not like them and they just don't have a frame of reference, or the exact opposite. That they see themselves mm. in these people and are afraid.
1: I think that's what it is.
0: Because I mean, what, what
1: difference does it make to me if you show up to work tomorrow
0: in a dress? Not a, It doesn't affect your life in any way.
1: But if you leave the house tomorrow in a dress and somebody socks you in the eye, that's not going to surprise
0: anybody. Right? right. But why? What the fuck? Because people... Because you're challenging people. In what uh, way, though? Right. Right. Because I think you're
1: striking a chord, like you yeah, said.
0: You're, yeah. You're, 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 you're. You know, think of something as simple as all of these people who push anti-gay legislation. Yeah. Getting caught sucking dick in a bag. <laughs> right. It's like you challenge, you make them. Right. If someone sees you living a full life, it's an envy yes, thing. that's what it is. Yeah. Living a full life. Yeah. It's an envy thing.
1: You're a guy out on the sidewalk wearing a dress. Right. Without any care in the world.
0: Right. Living a full life. Right. I think that's what it is. Yeah. And that that threatens people who are like, well, I can't do that because for whatever reason they can't do that because they're afraid of rejection from somebody or whatever it is. And the fact that you're able to be out in the world and be your full self and they can't like it it, it really the reaction really is one of, of envy right
1: i would love it if we can move past that
0: i would love it too it'd make the world a lot easier to live in
1: i have challenged my children to be part of a
0: generation
1: that can not make things worse
0: i mean fingers crossed that they do i think <laughs> you know look i think that that young people Really do. I believe the children. <laughs> Listen though, they believed that
1: in 1969, right? And that generation yeah, then, yeah, seemed we, like it was going to change everything. Oh, Shit up,
0: yes. Capitalism ruins everything. Right. I think. I think a lot of kids now are growing up without the without the desire. To be capitalist, without the desire to... And I think that desire is fading away. I agree with you,
1: but I think that also means that the death rattle of the people who insist on hanging on to that
0: is going to get louder. Right?
1: Man, what comes after Trump?
0: I don't even want to fucking know. Like, we may or may not have seen the worst. Right. You know. But it's incumbent uh, upon... I mean, it's incumbent upon all of us. But, you know, the folks, you know, we're in our mid 40s now, and the people that are younger than us, you know, are going to have to pick up the ball and run with it. And we're just going to have to get the fuck out of their way.
1: They're going to run into a gender neutral
0: locker room. That's cool. That is totally cool. They run into a gender neutral locker room and play all of the gender unspecific sports that they would like they need to play. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> You know, maybe a gender-neutral locker room will smell better than a boys' locker room. <laughs> it can't smell. It much can't worse. smell much worse. <laughs> um. I've always said that I appreciate the honesty that our guests bring to this show, and uh, this particular episode I feel was a little bit more honest than others. And I appreciate Jeff so much for that. He always keeps it real, and uh, that's what makes him valuable as a friend, and that's what makes him valuable as a human being, and it's also what makes him valuable as a writer. You can find Jeff online at Jefito, that is J E F I T O, and I love putting that extra accent emphasis on it. Uh, Jefito on Instagram and on Twitter. As I mentioned earlier, Jeff is the author of two books, Landview in the Afternoon and Uncle John Spiritopia. He co-hosts the podcast FM to MTV along with Jason here and yours truly, and 1991, the year AOR ate itself, which is co hosted by our friend Matt Wardlaw. Uh, Jeff can also be found at listeningiseverything.com. That is listeningiseverything.com. And the Popdose archive is available for all of you to peruse, even though neither Jeff nor I is a contributor to that website anymore. There's plenty of great stuff there. Again, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate you. Thanks again for listening to this episode. We really hope that you stick around and listen to future episodes or past episodes if you feel so inclined. You can obviously listen to Detoxicity on the podcast platform of your choosing. And if you want to get in touch with me, please hit me up on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy, Twitter, TizMikeJoseph, or you can email me at detoxpod at gmail.com always willing to hear constructive criticism thoughts ideas real realizations and if you yourself would like to be a guest on the show or you know somebody who would make a good guest i will take recommendations from now until the end of time so please feel free to reach out to me i want to thank a couple of people who've been very important to this show uh, calvin williams composed the music that you hear at the beginning and end of every episode jacob block composed the logo or created the logo for the show. And I want to give a special shout out to Andrew Grossman and Jeff Giles for providing inspiration for me to come up with this idea and bring it to fruition. Once again, thank you all for listening. I really, really appreciate it and take care of yourselves. Peace.